It's easy to talk about the effects of God's love, but how do you tell someone how to be loved? How do you accept God's unconditional love for you in a way that helps you actually feel it? The answer is going to surprise you. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of the book Shut Up Devil, creator of the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life. I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience, and I'd love for you to join me live on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. And by the way, don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. Well, as I have said recently, after years of religious effort trying to fix and heal and grow myself to be more like Jesus, I found that nothing did that like resting in the truth that God loves me just as I am. As I said in the last message, the goal of Christianity is not to be better, it's to be loved. Let me bring you back to Ephesians 3.19. This is part of what's called Paul's prayer for spiritual growth. He says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness and power that comes from God. God's love. That's what Paul says right there. Not more to do, not more discipline, not more devotion. God's love is the source of wholeness, completion, and power. So I say, be you and be loved. That's so much of my story. And since I've been sharing that message, I've had various people ask, how? How do you accept God's love? How do you receive God's love? How do you feel God's love? Do you wonder the same? The first time somebody asked me that, it caught me off guard, really. The effects of God's love are easy to describe, just like it's easy to describe the effects of gravity. I can say that I'm able to stand today because of both. But like gravity, God's love is an invisible and intangible force. How do you instruct somebody to receive something they can't put their hands on physically? Where do you begin? Do you advise them to sit cross-legged on the floor, close their eyes, extend their open palms, and breathe deeply? And then what? So I had to do some thinking, retrace my journey. I never sat cross-legged on the floor with extended hands. Yes, I've had experiences that personalize things about God's love, things that Scripture already says, things like I am worthy of love and the lengths that God went for me out of love. Those were profound moments and revelations, of course, but through what process did those revelations make their way from my head to my heart so that I felt loved? Well, I thought about that for a while, then I realized that I had it backward. Accepting God's love was not about getting it from my head to my heart. It was about getting what is in my heart to my head. Look at Romans 5.5. 5. It says, 
for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. The truth is that God poured his love into our hearts. You are loved whether you know it or not. You are loved whether you feel it or not. But to feel it, accept it, receive it, whatever you call it, you have to believe it. How you walk, talk, and live is influenced by what you believe. Now, it wasn't an overnight thing for me to get here. The path from my heart to my head was blocked by a lifetime of lies, each which had to be replaced with certain truths. And I found that to be the case for everybody who struggles with accepting God's love. It takes a reprogramming of the mind, which takes time. There's no way around that. But that's why I'm here. I'm here to help shorten that time for you with some truths that helped me. So let's get right into them. Truth number one is that you are fully known and fully loved. It took nearly 30 years for me to feel loved by anybody, really. And that's not from a lack of people who loved me. I had a loving family, for sure. The issue is that I didn't believe whatever love was given to me because I didn't feel fully known. I disregard any mention or gesture of love with a thought like, well, you wouldn't love me if you really knew me. Not that I helped anybody know me. No way. I built my walls to keep people out, to keep people from rejecting me even more than they already had. Shame exaggerates things like that. It uses darkness to turn a tinker toy in the corner of the room into a monster. Then one day, while in my room, God shined a light that helped me come out from under the cover of fear. It was a light into his word. After my regular ritual at that time of apologizing for myself to God, my eyes caught an open page of the Bible in my hands. I saw Ephesians 1, verse 4. It says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, this wasn't a new verse for me, yet it felt entirely new when I heard God say to me, you are no surprise to me. I knew all of that when I made you, yet I still made you, and I still love you. Why don't you hear that for yourself? God knew you before he made you, everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, yet he still brought you into existence, and he still loves you. Isn't this what King David knew? Go to Psalm 139. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. And David continued to detail, if you go through there, the basics of his life that God knew when he sits, when he stands, when he travels, when he rests. He also understood that God is present for his every deed and aware of his every thought. Now, for most of my life, that idea frightened me. I didn't want to think of what all God saw and what all he knew. But David should have felt that fear, if anybody should have. 
For one, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he plotted to have her husband killed. The thoughts that lead to those kinds of acts are scandalous enough not to mention the acts themselves. Yet as you read the psalm, David praises God for his knowledge and even invites him further into his darkest thoughts. And David had one of the most intimate relationships with God of anyone in Scripture. How could he maintain such intimacy and confidence with God, knowing that God knew such dreadful things about him? He knew that he was unconditionally loved, that's how. In Psalm 138.8, David says, For your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. David was also certain that God had good and precious thoughts about him. In Psalm 139.17, he says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God, they cannot be numbered. You see, David felt safe in a relationship with a God he knew would never forsake him, never throw him away, not for anything. And amazingly, David was sure of all of this long before the fullness of God's character was unveiled through Jesus. Now that the cross has rendered our secrets meaningless and us as righteous, how much more should we feel safe with God? Infinitely more, I say. There's no chance of that changing. As soon as I realized this truth, I was able to let love in after almost 30 years. First and foremost, by God, of course. And then in time, by some of his people, too. That's because receiving God's unfailing love removes the shame, which allows you to take down your walls to let some trusted people see into the real you. And I'm telling you, I promise you, the feeling and healing of love compounds from there. I also promise you that it's true what they say. You only feel as loved as you feel that you are known. Well, good news. With God, you have as much of both as you can get. Knowing all about you, God loves you first. Knowing the most about you, God loves you most. And no matter what you do in the future, God will always love you. If you still find it challenging to accept that you are fully known and fully loved, I think these next two truths will help you out with that. And the next truth is, you can't disappoint God. Now, I have not yet met a Christian who doesn't believe that God is all-knowing. You believe that he's all-knowing, right? It's called omniscience, by the way. But do you live as if he's all-knowing? A lot of people, and me for a long time, don't. That was the source of my stress and striving. I feared that I might do or not do something that let God down and would change his opinion of me. Well, if we continue with Psalm 139 there, look at what David says in verse 15. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. God saw you being formed. This means that there's zero chance that something about you takes him off guard. 
not your gender, not your hair color, not that you have ADHD or that you enjoy having too many Krispy Kremes, not that you're an introvert or an extrovert. Nothing can take him off guard, which means nothing can disappoint him. Now, I have had people on social media, mostly, try to argue that with me. As far as some people are concerned, God's always disappointed. One person said, look at the state of the world. How can he not be? Well, consider the definition of disappoint. It means sad or displeased because someone has failed to fulfill one's expectations. So I ask, if God is all-knowing, how can he be let down by expectations? Now, I admit I don't understand everything about God's omniscience and our free choice. Mystery is the only conclusion we can draw about some things, and I'm satisfied with that. The stories of people in Scripture, though, they don't leave much mystery when it comes to what God knew about the people that he called. God chose Moses to lead his people out of slavery to the Egyptians. He was not disappointed to learn that Moses had a speech impediment. Later, God chose Gideon to deliver his people from the terror of the Midianites. He wasn't disappointed to find Gideon in a cave hiding from them. He wasn't let down to hear of Gideon's insecurity. God's only response was, go in the strength that you have. I am sending you, like who you are as you are. Like with Moses, God had already accounted for his complexities, complications, and weaknesses. It was all baked into the plan. As are yours. This means that you can't be a disappointment to God. You can't behave in a way that disappoints him either. And on that point, I think about the Apostle Peter. Jesus called him the rock upon which the church would be built. Yet he stumbled his way to that destiny. He misinterpreted and misunderstood parables. When he tried to walk on water with Jesus, he lost faith and sank. When he was supposed to keep watch while Jesus prayed, he fell asleep. After Jesus' arrest, Peter denied knowing him three times. His list of failures is even longer than that. But was Jesus disappointed? Was he devastated? Did he cancel his plans for Peter? Not at all. After his resurrection, Jesus actually took Peter aside and reaffirmed his plan three times in a row, once for each of Peter's denials. It's like he canceled them out. And Peter went on from there and preached boldly on the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people were added in the single day. He became a leader in the early church. He became that rock that Jesus said he would, despite all the things that he fell to and stumbled through. Like I said, I don't understand everything about God's omniscience. I know that he doesn't cause everything to happen. I know that he doesn't prefer everything that happens. God doesn't want any of us to suffer. But I also know that he's not surprised by anything that happens nor let down by any of it. According to scripture, God directs the steps of the godly. 
And it also promises that he corrects our missteps. I don't know the ins and outs of how that works. I just know that somehow, despite our failures and because of them, he gets us each right where we are meant to be. As I said, they're all baked into the plan. So you can't surprise God. You can't disappoint God. The third truth that helps receive God's unconditional love is that you can't out God's love. Now stay with me through this one, okay? For me to accept that I am loved without exception, I had to come to terms with the truth of forgiveness. Not so much about past stuff, but about present and future stuff. And that took some time, a lot of time really. Mostly because the idea went against everything I was taught by religion since potty training. I was raised to believe that forgiveness happens with confession of sin by sin by sin. In that tradition, it was confession to a priest. Then when I left that tradition, it was confession to God. And scripture appeared to leave no room for doubt. Go to 1 John 1.9. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, to an analytic, linear-thinking person like me, the implications of this verse went something like this. If you don't confess your sins, you are unforgiven. And if you're unforgiven, then can you really be loved? How can God unconditionally love somebody he has something against? And that kind of reasoning is probably why most days I felt like the kid who picks one flower petal for each, he loves me, he loves me not. Whether I would land on loved or unloved was basically a guess. And that's how it is when you link God's favor, forgiveness, or love to any kind of performance. Since you can't do anything perfectly, you're left to wonder or worry where you stand. And as it relates to confession, I could not confess every sin perfectly. And you can't either. And that's not me calling you a rabid sinner. It's because we live as humans in a fallen world. Even if we succeed to sin less and less and less, On this side of eternity, we can't get that down to zero, and we can't remember everything. That's why Jesus came. But I worried what would happen to me if, God forbid, I died with an unconfessed sin. What if I had a bad thought or forgot to mention something in the hour or two or 24 since I prayed last? That might sound neurotic, maybe even morbid, but not all that unreasonable if eternity is on the line. As it turns out, I'm not the only neurotic out there anyway. Many people have contacted me with the same question. So what then do we make of John's instruction here? Well, he provides a clue in the verse just before it. Verse 8, he says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Well, who claims to be sinless? Not a real Christian. The basis of salvation is our awareness of our need for Jesus because of sin. 
That has never been up for debate. Though some tried to debate it back then. They were called Gnostics. They professed to believe in Jesus, yet many of their false teachings included denying the reality of sin. So it's to these people that John's talking about here, or talking to, really, giving this instruction. Essentially, he says, hey, Gnostics, you don't have to deny the reality of sin. Just admit the truth of it and be forgiven once and for all. So simply put, John's instruction doesn't teach case-by-case or sin-by-sin forgiveness, suggesting otherwise puts it at odds with what everybody else said in the New Testament. Remember, John the Baptist said that Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. Paul said that because of the cross, God no longer counts people's sins against them. The author of Hebrews affirmed that Jesus' sacrifice removed sin once and for all. Now, thankfully, we don't have to assume that John understood this. We know that he did because he says so just three verses later in 1 John 2, 2. He says he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Of course, it is fine, even healthy to talk to God about your failures. I'm not saying don't do that. I still do that. Just know that when you do, they are already forgiven. That'll help you receive the love, not the condemnation. Now, I can hear the critics as I say that. They say, that's hyper grace. Ever heard that term before? Not you're bound to. Hypergrace is the derogatory phrase that some people use for the kind of grace that forgives everything, past, present, and future, by faith in Jesus alone without asking for it or working for it. Yet it's ignorant to use this phrase critically because grace is hyper by Scripture's own definition of it. Let me take you to Romans 5, verse 20. Paul says, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Well, the Greek word for more abundant is huperperisio. First five letters in that word spell H-Y-P-E-R, hyper. It means, the word means to abound more exceedingly, just as Paul said, becomes more abundant. In other words, God's grace is greater, greater than your feelings, greater than your fears, greater than the devil, greater than sin, greater than everything. And we better hope that it is because it's our only hope. I get that some people will misinterpret this as encouragement to sin. People always have. There's nothing new about naysayers except for their names. Jesus had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We have wooden seas and couldn't seas. The best that I can do is echo how Paul responded to similar accusations. In Romans 6, verses 1 through 2, he says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Of course not. Can't get much clearer than that. But when you do, 
when you inevitably fall short, grace assures that sin doesn't change God's mind about you. It doesn't change God's love for you. You can't out-sin God's unfailing love. I suppose, to some, that's the scandal of it. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. They see it as unfair that someone could squander the father's blessings on wild living, yet still be welcomed home as if none of it ever happened. Welcomed home with a party, no less. It took me many years to see it. But to me, that's not the scandal of love. Therein lies the empowerment of love. Rather than the father lingering on or emphasizing what you do wrong, he celebrates what is right, which is you as his beloved. Maybe that's counterintuitive to everything human, but isn't that what's worked from the beginning? Isn't that what brought Adam and Eve out of hiding? Isn't that what was at the foundation of David's confidence? Isn't that what emboldened Peter to fulfill his calling? This brings me to my final encouragement when it comes to accepting God's love. After a failure, when you know that you've blown it, when you've done that thing you hate yet again, as quickly as you can, remember, God loves me. As weird as it feels, say it too. Speak it aloud. And it's going to feel weird, I'm sure. Probably wrong, especially at first. The enemy is sure to make you feel like a thief, like you're getting something for nothing. Or for nothing. And I guess you kind of are. But don't wait for enough time to feel like it. Don't wait to do something to try to deserve it. Say it right away. Believe it right away. Why don't you say it right now with me, even as you listen to me? Like, speak it out loud right now. Say it with me. God loves me. I'm telling you, if you can accept God's love smack dab in the midst of failure, you won't stay there for long. As Paul said in Ephesians 3.19, God's love is the source for all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Okay. Now, while we are on the topic of God's love, I have to tell you how I can help you beyond this message. I have a teaching series on the topic called Lovable, how to experience and share the healing power of God's love. You know, most people remain unchanged and unhealed solely because they haven't fully accepted God's unconditional love. This series helps you take the love that God has poured into your heart and get it into your head so that it affects the rest of you, so that you're finally able to have more peace with people too. This lovable series includes four audio messages, Experiencing the Radical Love of Jesus, exploring the depths of God's limitless love, how to love hard-to-love people, and compassion without compromise. You can get this mailed to you on four CDs, 
or download it instantly on four mp3s at kylewinkler.org slash lovable. That's kylewinkler.org slash lovable. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. And don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.